Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I did the final content edit for this story last weekend while I was flying home from New York City. I was sitting there with my headphones on, looking out the window at the billowy clouds, and I was smiling and laughing out loud at times, wiping away some tears. And I thought, this story is such a good one. There's so much courage and resilience and wisdom here. And this is exactly why I started the podcast, to share stories like this. I've been thinking about how I would introduce this story of Micah and her beautiful, awful, heroic journey. But I think she tells it so much better than I ever could. So I'll just say that I'm very happy that Micah found Back from the Abyss and me, and that we were able to create this episode for all of you to hear. I think my dad was a really traumatized little boy in a man's body. And he still is. Mm -hmm. Now an old man's body, you know? And it's sad. Um, I think I spent a lot of time as I got older trying to wake him up to see the success that he'd made like in his professional life to try to get him to snap out of the trauma trance so that he could just be okay, but to no avail. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think at some point, probably around the time of becoming a mother, I realized it wasn't my job to raise him up. Mm -hmm. Mom was the good guy of, of the two. She liked to do a lot of retail therapy, and that was her way of trying to make it better. But mom did not actually do much protecting because I think she was herself quite terrified of him. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways she kind of put me in the middle. Hmm. Um, I remember spending a lot of mental bandwidth as a kid trying to think about how to navigate between the two of them. You know, like modifying stories to tell her, to tell him, so that they could just be okay together. Mm. Um, Almost kind of parentified and adultified, like you're the the go-between and the sort of support for each. Yes. Mm. I felt like my mom's cheerleader and my dad's coach. Mm. You were your mom's only daughter. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What was the fear? I mean, what did you have a sense as a little girl and as you moved into teenage years, was it that you were going to be shamed or that you were doing something wrong or you were going to be hurt or called out or... Hurt, beaten, emotionally berated. Um, there were just always threats, threats of hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they happened, but mostly just this, this like, crushing fear of being crushed Mm. by this really powerful masculine presence Mm -hmm. it was super unpredictable and he was very mean to her like he was constantly chiding her about her weight and you know there were years of my childhood where she didn't she just didn't eat um and he would like praise her like you have such good discipline look at how well you're doing um so she would cook these elaborate 
grew up in the South, so elaborate, rich, fat, fatty meals, and then just drink water. And that was very normal. Mm. Um, and also the, the lovely little added in message, like, you be sure not to eat too much because you don't want to have your mom's problems. Mm. So I definitely there's a clear sense of internalizing that to be loved, you had to be thin and you had to be disciplined. Mm. We went to church uh, Sunday, twice a day in the morning and at night and Wednesday, middle of the way through the week, there were like vacation Bible schools in the summer, just a lot of church going. But the thing that really is, is so ridiculous about all of this is that nobody wanted to go including him but we had to go like do our penance and so it was just it felt like a bunch of theater you know where you have to put on your pretty little dress and bows in my hair and you know he might scream at us the whole car ride there but we get out of the car and everybody's all smiles Mm -hmm. and we go in and you know it I knew I don't know, nobody told me this, but these were just the conversations that I overheard. We were not allowed to sit in certain sections of the church because my dad was a divorced man. So you couldn't go too close up front because he was already fallen from from grace. Mm. So he's already living in the shame culture. Oh, yeah. But we still had to go. It's just so many strange paradoxical things. I mean, there was just such a strong sense of everything about being a girl being bad, you know, starting with the, the Garden of Eden and, and Eve, who basically rendered everything to shit for women because she was curious. So the grand sin really was her curiosity. What message does that send to a kid who's infinitely curious? Not good ones. You know, by the time I was five, I washed my hands, like, obsessively. Um, I, re- I remember, like, the, the strange sort of compulsive counting, washing. Oh, no, something happened. I got to start the process over again. Um, I, I mean, they, it was bad. I had to wear, like, Vaseline on my hands and socks on them at night because they were just... There was such a pervasive fear of being dirty and how bad that would be. from one house into a different house around the time I turned 12. So not, you know, tween, totally tween. But those were the years when the real sort of almost violent fighting between my father and I emerged. And I think a lot of it had to do with my emerging sexuality, which was, it felt like, like I, the emergence of my breasts, my body felt like a war declaration to him. Mm. That's the best way I know to describe it. He just was so mad at me. Just so mad. And everything about 
me just being me and my body was such an affront. Yeah. What do you think that anger was? Why was he so rageful as you became a woman? Well, I think that there was a lot of sexual abuse in his family of origins. So, you know, in the lineage system, Mm. I think there was a lot of sexual abuse compounded with this purity culture that just rendered no space or place for people to talk about things or move through them. So they just perpetuated. And so I think... I mean, I can only really speculate, but I think he had such repressed sexuality that, you know, to see me as an emerging sexual being, he, I I don't know if he could distinguish like seeing his daughter as something beautiful versus like evocative of something sexual in himself. And I think the shame that that conjured up just filled him with rage that he couldn't stand. So I think, you know, over time, his his sexual shame became mine. I was also so mad that my mom wouldn't do anything that I felt like, let me show you what's possible. Let me just, okay, you're saying you're going to hurt me, you're going to hit me, well, do it. Do it, because I don't really care. You're already hurting me the worst you could possibly hurt me. Go for it. And that would really incense him. Mm-hmm. And so there were definitely a few times where, quote unquote, I provoked a really violent outburst. You provoked. Yeah, emphasis mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Because that was the narrative. Well, you shouldn't have pushed him that way. I was so disembodied, you know, like I h- hated my body. I didn't feel safe at home. I was confused when I went to school because I didn't know what to do with male attention. Male attention felt really weird and uncomfortable, but also kind of good because the male attention at home was so bad. It's like, oh, boys can be nice to me. Okay, this is novel. And then like sort of not trusting girls, I think, because I didn't trust my mom. So... My, my like favorite people in, in school as a teenager were my teachers. I wanted to be their friend, you know. Um, and I had a couple who, who sort of appropriately, I think, let that happen. I loved reading literature. I like lived for stories where I could find characters that I think I related to in some way. The other notable thing worth worth saying that happened right around puberty is my mom decided she really wanted me to, I hate talking about this, but it's, it's, I'll get over my own ego to talk about it because it matters. She wanted me to be a beauty queen. She decided that would be awesome for me. (laughs) Awesome. I don't know how else to say it. She, I remember her coming to me with a clipping from the newspaper about a beauty pageant and scholarship money and prizes. And I remember thinking, "Mm, okay. I mean, I didn't really know. Again, I was like 
14. I didn't really know any anything about anything for that matter. So that was the beginning of more shopping, um, also a theme in, <laughs> in my childhood, which I don't know many girls who are teenage girls that don't like to go shopping, especially if they've been conditioned that that's like a fun thing. And it was fun by contrast to other things, which, you know, I should say the other part of being at home when we weren't shopping and when dad was around was just we had to work. Like, you need to be productive. You know, read books, do chores, like, just wasn't fun. So shopping by contrast was really fun. So that was the beginning of the other part of my kind of teenage life, like beauty pageants. So they took me to the first one, which was like a county pageant. And, you know, that was so weird. Like you dress up in a ball gown, you wear a swimsuit, and you're on a stage in front of a lot of people with bright lights. So weird. And remember, I did not feel comfortable in my body. I definitely did not feel like a pretty person. So it was just weird. Very strange. But the part of the the process that I liked was at the end, they started asking me questions about things like life things. And I turns out I had stuff to say. And I was sort of surprised like, oh, because nobody ever asked me what I thought about anything. So it was kind of novel. So I won. And then I, I got a bunch of flowers. I got a tiara. <laughs> like all of that seemed really silly, but also kind of strangely exciting because nothing like that had ever happened to me. And both my parents seemed really happy. I was wondering, even your dad, because here's something celebrating beauty and your femininity, and he's watching you on stage. Well, this is what he said to me in the car. Turns out girls are good for something after all. Oh, my gosh. So what I didn't know when I said yes to the little pageant is that the little pageant was like a gateway to the big pageant, i.e. the one for the whole state. So I also had no idea that that involved like so much stuff, dress fittings, eating consultations with fitness trainers, um someone who taught you how to walk in heels. I mean, this is like a crazy subculture world that I think still exists, but talk about antiquated and otherworldly, just wild. But I embarked on the training and my mom you know, in I think looking back she she acts like it was all sort of my idea. But I really was just going along because it was a thing to do. Um, I got to leave 
school to go to fittings and coach. I had this like pageant coach where she would train me like drill, drill style, hard questions. What are you going to do about hunger in Africa? What are you going to do about, you know, boom, boom, boom. Nine months of training boot camp later, I was like, at that point, I guess I was 16, maybe almost 17. There were so many girls, you know, like hundreds of girls, because you can come to these pageants by way of winning one, or you can just pay to get in. So I think there were like 108 girls. Like, oh my God, this is really intense. And they were, you know, much more serious about it than me. And I also had a strong part of me that was like a overachiever. I wanted to like make, make my parents proud. It seemed this was the best chance to get them to be happy and good with me and each other. So by the time I got there, there was so much riding on this experience. You know, you get whittled down from all the girls to then there's like 10 or 15, and then there's five. And one of the women who was one of the boss ladies behind the scenes of the pageant world had told me, you know, basically like it's going to be you and this other girl. And as long as you don't screw anything up with your question, then you could win. So just, you know, do a good job. Don't screw anything up. Well, I could hear her voice, you know, in my head when it's that last question. And then I totally screwed up. I just stood there under the mic like, uh, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? All these people. And, you know, I ended up prattling something off that was fine. But I think the stage fright and the like, you know, 30 to 60 seconds of just standing there didn't compel them <laughs> to send me on to the big shebang. But that moment was such a turning point because it was like a real sense of here was my chance and I failed. Mm. Yeah. So that was the beginning of a pretty, pretty severe eating disorder. Um, and just kind of the total deconstruction of everything up to that point. Mm. I mean, I'd already been on my fitness plan as allocated by the coach and the trainer. And so, you know, I think there was already the groundwork was there. But again, given the family system, you know, my dad was praising me for my discipline leading up to that. So it just turned out like discipline on steroids, you know, and that summer, I worked at the YMCA as a lifeguard, and I must have swam so many laps. I mean, every time I wasn't on duty, I would swim laps, and I just quit eating. You know, it wasn't like a conscious thought. It just felt good. It felt so good. I can swim more laps. I can eat less food. Good plan. <laughs> good plan. 
it was just... It was a taking control sort of yeah. play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, 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 st- I remember thinking like, wow, this is, I'm being very secretive about things. I'm lying about when I ate and what I ate. That seemed weird, but it still just felt so good to have something in my control. And then I... Maybe the first time you'd been in control. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that's the thing about eating disorders. I mean, initially they work so well because you get results and you are totally driving the ship. Yeah. Until you're not. Yeah, it felt great. And the other thing that's worth noting is that I was like desexualizing myself, which felt really good. So the smaller my breasts got, the less curves my body had, the, the safer I felt. You know, like, this is a good strategy. Be small, be non-sexual, stay safe. Mm-hmm. Good job. <laughs> well done. I didn't want to feel sexual. I mean, I, when, when I developed breasts, I taped them down because I was like, oh, God, nobody can see these things. Like, hide them, hide them. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a process of literal and metaphoric disappearance. Like there you are on the stage imagining, as you said, the lights on you and so much pressure and swimsuits and ball gowns. And now you're in the pool just slowly shrinking, mm-hmm. you know, not eating, disappearing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the things that happen when people have anorexia started to happen, like, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and there'd be hair on the pillow my, my cycle stopped. So I think there were some parts of me knowing, hmm, this is maybe problematic, but I was not stopping because it felt too good to keep, keep going. Um, and then the, the thing that really brought it all to a, a screeching halt was a car crash. Um, so... You know, when you you are subsisting on like 500 calories or less a day for a long amount of time, you you go in and out of like clear consciousness pretty pretty easily. And you know, I was just operating on some sort of like adrenaline state and I left in the car and it had rained that day and I don't really remember except that my tire hit a big puddle of water. I think I had been sort of unconscious before that happened. And then I tried to correct the wheel, which is like the worst thing you could do because it just propelled the car into motion. So I did all these circles across the road and then I flipped over a ravine. I think I was unconscious again for a little bit. And then I sort of woke up like dangling upside down in the car. My, my grandfather, my maternal side grandfather had recently passed and he was like the safe man in my life. And so I was looking for him to like, see, was I with him? And I could feel him. And he was like, you get out of this car and you got to start your life away from those people. It was like a really clear sense of feeling him tell me that. And then I noticed there was like smoke coming out of the hood of the car. So I was like, 
you know, total adrenaline kicked in because the car door was pinned shut by a fence, but I had my little backpack. So I knocked it out with the backpack and I crawled out and climbed up the ravine. And that, that feels really triumphant in my body. And then I got to the top and there were all these ambulances and, you know, fire trucks already there. I don't know how much time had passed. And there was a sweet old couple that had come from the house across the street because they saw it happen. And they were like, put a blanket around me. And they, you know, took me into their house and said, we're gonna call your parents. And I was like, oh, oh no, we can't, we cannot call them. And they were like, we're gonna call your parents. I was like, they're gonna be very angry with me. And they were like, I don't think they're going to be angry. I think they're going to be really glad you're okay. And in that kind of in-between state, I remember thinking, maybe I can just stay with these people. They gave me a Coke. I didn't even care about the calories. They covered me up with a blanket. And I felt really good. Was that a turning point in your eating disorder as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell, tell me how that... Because, you know, pulling out of a restrictive eating disorder, anorexia is, is so hard. Oh, God, it but yeah, terrible. how? And I know we talked about this, a little bit about that before. But yeah, how that car wreck and those realizations and how that started you to pull out of this, really spiral into, you know, into potentially fatal illness. That eating disorder was so strong. It was so strong and it told me things like, crazy things, like... This girl died doing it. If you had that much discipline, you know, like, whoa, just, and I don't think of myself as that dark person, but I remember those thoughts, you know? So it was a big battle to kind of win myself back from that, that part, which I, I now think like that part was the internalization of all the abuse, just, just beating me down inside myself. The near-fatal car wreck finally woke up Micah's parents to her severe eating disorder, and they took her to an inpatient psych unit filled with very sick people, but no one else with an eating disorder, and ultimately, no one she could relate to. As she transitioned to an intensive outpatient program, a caring but stern therapist at the hospital warned her that if she didn't start eating, she would probably be readmitted and given IV nutrition against her will until she regained weight. And then came a serendipitous assignment to another therapist who stood up for Micah in a way that no one ever had before. One thing about me is that, interestingly enough, in in a lot of ways, I love to follow rules. There are parts where I rationalize breaking them, but that's a separate point. Um... So I I was like, okay, I'm going to follow this woman's rules. She seems sensible. She's going to help me. I just trusted her. I don't know know why. And so that power of that trust was enough to begin to pull you out of your own kind of diluted rules around restricting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was still really hard. But I think I also knew like I'd almost just died. And I really didn't want to die. I don't think I wanted to die deep down. That that experience of feeling my grandfather was like, okay, if that guy's telling me don't die, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. And 
because I think he was like the true love that I had. So that, that power of love is pretty strong. And then we started doing these like outpatient therapy sessions where all the family members were required. And the real turning point, I think, was when this woman who I, you know, will love forever because of what she did, which is to, to, to put my dad in his place. And he hated her. Oh, he talked terrible about her. She was very masculine in her presentation. Not that that matters, but I think that probably aggravated him more. She would always just tell him, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And he would say, oh, everybody's blaming on me, blaming on me, blah, blah, blah. And then in one of my sessions, she said to me, listen, do you understand that there are certain things that he just cannot do? And I said, no, I don't know that because he's been allowed to do whatever he wants to do. So she said, we're going to write down a list. And if any of these things happen, you call my emergency line, doesn't matter what time of day, and we'll call the cops. Mm, Okay. So two days later, he's like threatening me in a really scary, terrible kind of way. I remembered I had her number and I checked that list and he was doing the thing. So I called her. It's like the middle of the night. She got on the phone. She asked me. Nobody stopped me from calling the fo- get picking up the phone, which I really thought they would, but they didn't. And she said, put your dad on the phone. And I handed him the phone. And I don't know exactly what she said, but I'm guessing she, she told me she was going to tell him that if he doesn't stop, she's going to call cops. He has to stop. He does not get to treat me like that. And he skulked away to his room like a scolded child. And he never, never did that to me that way again. It was the first time I ever experienced a boundary. Yeah. And what a powerful example of you trusting someone to help you. And they they did it. Mm -hmm. It was big because my mom couldn't do it for me. So this, this stranger was her job she did it that was a big turning point you know I think I I still had a lot of work to do but it it was a it was an internal and external shift because there was a a fatalism about the eating disorder well if he's just going to kill me I'm going to take this into my own hands so you actually feared that he had the ability to he would tell me that he's going to kill you I could kill you if I wanted to. Hmm. Wow. What a thing to say to your daughter. What a thing to say to anyone, but to say to your flesh and blood. He denies it now, but he said it so many times. And I think like, what, what was really going on there? I think he felt, felt and feels so utterly powerless that saying that was like an attempt to convince himself he had some power but it still doesn't make it okay.
my body just couldn't process food. You know, I wasn't making myself throw up, but I would just throw up every time I tried to eat food. And so I had started working with this nutritionalist. That was her technical title, but she was definitely like a healer, you know, like an intuitive, just good soul. And she was the first person I think I experienced going back into like my somatic body. I think that's how we would talk about it and not being just like totally disembodied, disassociated, like she brought me back through like a meditation process into my body and planted some seeds of safety there. And she never told me tripod. She wouldn't, I don't think that would have happened back then. But she did say, you know, alternative methods of healing can sometimes be more effective. Well, I had a lot of friends who smoke pot. I mean, that This is like by that time, late high school, early college. It's just a thing that people did. And I remember I never did it because I was, again, puritanical, trying to do everything right. And I remember sitting with friends and they were all talking about having the munchies. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this might help me eat and not puke. It was really that simple. Could I eat and not puke? And it worked amazing. And not only did it help me eat and not puke, but it really started like making me feel like my mind was changing. You know, like there were these new thoughts, like maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Hmm. Like maybe there's something wrong with them. And that was really when the eating disorder lost its like mighty hold, you know, like I think it took years to come out of it all the way, but, you know, there was just a softening of like, your body is okay. It's okay if you don't wear a size double zero. (laughs) Like, that's not the standard of discipline. I remember having these thoughts, and those were brand new thoughts. I could imagine there might be some risk of sort of the compulsiveness rigidity of anorexia sort of morphing into the into addiction i mean did it did it ever get to the point where your weed use was problematic or i mean i don't think so around the same time i discovered that this that weed could help me in this way it it also occurred to me while under that influence that i was ready to go to college I hadn't been able to, so I should connect to the last chapter that I graduated high school in three years instead of four because part of the plan was to be Miss Tennessee Teen USA and go on tour. So then when I didn't have a tour to go on, I kind of had nothing to do. But I also was not ready to go to college because I was in the crux of an eating disorder that was consuming me. Fast forward now to this point in time, I'm eating again, I'm like starting to gain a little bit of weight, and I'm having all these new thoughts. And at that time, I was no longer living in my house. I'd met a girl in like an an eating disorder group, and her family said, you can stay with us. 
So they let me stay with them. I was, they let me use one of their cars to go to my little job. And I remember thinking, I don't think I want to be a receptionist forever. (laughs) I think I want to go to school. So I started school and I was studying, I studied philosophy because it was like the most, the most deep exploration of the meaning of life that I could possibly find. So this connects to your question about addiction, like, I don't, it was never an issue. I don't know if that means I don't have an, I mean, clearly I have some addictive compulsive tendencies, but I just remember once I got into school, I was like, okay, I think I need my head to be really clear. And so I just quit using it Hmm. in the same way. When I finally made it to college, I loved it. I think part of me was like, oh my God, I got here. I got out. I went to this amazing little liberal arts college. There, the humanities, the philosophy department was not a booming business. So I had these incredible professors. Sometimes there'd be like 10 kids in my class and they really treated us like their kids, you know? Um, and I just loved the challenge of like, you know, I took one seminar on Nietzsche. It was all boys and me. And I was like, yeah, I can do this. (laughs) Watch out. (laughs) And it was amazing. I loved it. I took a class on Buddhism and Taoism in my philosophy department. And that the professor who was the director of Asian studies and philosophy was like, I have this grant to go do a big research project in China. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure, I'm going to get college credits. It's paid for. It's far away from my family. Let's do it. I never left Tennessee, you know, apart from Florida for vacation, spring break. So that was a big deal. It was a really big deal to go so far away And, you know, when we talk about, I say this a lot now in my grown-up life, that I think of the word psychedelic as just a qualifier for a certain kind of experience. It doesn't have to be about taking a psychedelic drug. I think travel can be pretty psychedelic. For me, that's how it felt looking back. Like I was in another dimension. I was a me I'd never been before. The past had no hold on me here. Nobody knew anything about any of that, that I was ashamed of, that I didn't want to remember. And so it just felt like little cords that were tied to me, just one by one, untied. So after that summer program, I just decided, well, shoot, I'll stay. (laughs) So I stayed for almost five years in Hong Kong, and it was amazing to feel so like my own self and that's when I think the eating disorder really went to remission Mm. when you found yourself you found some measure of safety and autonomy and 
Yeah, I think I realized that my currency as a human was not defined by any of those things that they'd conditioned me to believe. My weight, how pretty I was or wasn't, that my brain mattered, mm-hmm. you know, that my heart mattered. Mm-hmm. What an amazing full circle, Micah, that thinking of you on the stage, Miss Teen Tennessee and freezing and maybe not answering that question optimally and then going on to college to be a philosophy major. <laughs> There's something just so... Poignant. Poignant, yeah. I, that's just... Oh, it's such a full circle, like, win. Uh-huh. Like, just, like, coming back to just show yourself in the world. Like, I got this. I'm stepping right into the intellectual part of me. Uh-huh. It's interesting you say that, because I just had a memory flash in my mind. So when I, once I started college... And I was like, philosophy, Micah, everything about the past was like top secret, vaulted. I never told anyone. Like, I was with my now husband for like two or three years before I confessed that I'd once been a beauty pageant girl. Hmm. Um, but one day I came, like the philosophy department was in this one tiny building in my college and you know, it was a small little community, like I said, so everybody knew everyone. And I came to the top of the stairs one day, and there was like a crowd of people. And they were all gathered around the board, this bulletin board where announcements were. And then everyone started saying, Oh, Micah, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what are y'all talking about? Somehow, like a paper that I'd written won an award. And I don't even know who or how they dug up the past about the pageant and they put this in the bio. Like this is Micah's little story and now look at her paper. Oh God, I wanted to run out of that building all the way as far as I could go because it was like this strange convergence of that past with this new world that I'd built and they just couldn't touch each other. Mm. And I get the sense it's not just the beauty pageant world, but everything it represented of your mom's like, this is what we're going to do. And like, Mm -hmm. there's so much tied up in all that. And yeah, I just remember that. Like I was like sweating. I was kind of shaking. I had to like get out and all, all my friends, I was like, I can't handle these things colliding into each other. It was such a visceral response. Wow. Micah then returned to the U.S. and settled in Portland, where she found a new career as a life coach, she got married, and eventually decided to have a child. But the pregnancy had serious and life-threatening complications with a placental abruption, forced bed rest, and then a premature delivery at 33 weeks due to worsening preeclampsia. So... Usually when a woman has preeclampsia and she gives birth, almost immediately the blood pressure returns to normal. Mine got higher. And so they were like, we got to do some stuff with you. So kiss your baby and then we're taking you. And that, that did something inside me that I don't even know how to explain. It was just crazy making inside me. The uh, primal animal instinct, 
That's all I can really give you. Just being separated from him for 30 something hours while they stabilized me, like intellectually, I understand they were doing exactly what they had to do. I lost my mind. I totally lost my mind. So all those latent compulsive control tendencies were like, whoa, we are coming back. Mm. Here we here we are ready to go to work in a whole new industrious sort of way and level. So it started in the hospital, you know, in the NICU. OCD about germs, fear about him breathing. Is he going to stop breathing? And then, you know, they told us he's doing amazing. This kid has no idea he's a preemie. He's passing all these tests. Look at him go. We're going to send you home. And I was like, you, you cannot send us home. There's no way we're ready. Look how small he is. I don't feel okay. And they're like, you guys are great. Mm. Well. He was great. He was great. Yeah. I was not okay. Super not okay. I was hearing ghosts talking to me. Um, spirits talking to me. I was convinced there was something in the closet I mean, it, and it was real. Like, mm. I can tell you this, like, it felt so real. Yeah. It sounds like you had postpartum psychosis. Yeah. So scary. So scary. But I was also still functioning. Like, in the midst of this, my husband lost his job. So I was like, I'm going to go back to work, which I tried to do. And on the surface, you know, to my therapist, she was like, you need to take it easy. I was like, I'm doing great. I was not doing great. So in the one hand, I think things looked like I was okay. But on the other hand, they were not okay. I think I maybe told you this. But at one point, my husband caught me trying to tape my eyes open, like with tape, because I was so scared to go to sleep. What if he stopped breathing? And I had let myself fall asleep. How would I live with myself? Yeah. Were you getting any treatment then, any medications or therapy? Or? Well, I was very stubborn about not wanting to take anything because I didn't want contaminated milk. You know, I was, you know, I was just so stubborn about it. And I was getting treatment. I was talking to a therapist through this whole, whole period. You know, when the, when the hyper, I, I don't think I mentioned in I had hyperemesis before the abruption, or maybe I did. Anyways, I had started seeing a therapist then. So I was seeing her once or twice a week. So I was definitely processing what was going on, but I don't know. It kind of feels like in snapshots are very crystal clear and other parts are very blurry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, psychiatrically, the postpartum period is the most risky time of a woman's life. And it's such a powerful example, Micah, to hear that you had done so much healing, come so far, and as soon as baby came out, again, this is such a thing psychiatrically, like something just broke. And as you said, it all came rushing back and more. I mean, things you'd experienced, but also new, horrible things. Well, I think, I, I know I've told you about this, but the eating disorder met its match in this 
precious period of time. It's the part of me that I now refer to as my epigenetic guard. This part was like the eating disorder times 100 because it was there to protect not me but my child. There was no way in hell my child was going to suffer the way that I suffered. And so this part just was so vigilant and on alert and just crazy, Hmm. super crazy. Also, this part helped me, I mean, helped me, yeah, I guess, when I wouldn't let me sleep is when I started coming across the clinical trials. Um, MDMA heals treatment-resistant trauma. MDMA used with people who have sexual abuse. Uh, Wee hours of the morning, like, oh, oh, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Oh, this is like a circle. I've come back somehow to where I left off, but different. And so it was really clear that that's what I needed to do, that there was stuff deep inside that talking to a therapist, I could talk till my head fell off. Mm -hmm. And you knew, it sounds like you knew intuitively that this was not just, you know, postpartum stuff, if you will, because that's a thing, but this went much deeper than that, that the postpartum kind of decompensation just unleashed all this trauma. Oh. You know, when we talk about PTSD and flashbacks and dreams and these sorts of things, I was having dreams of things that were from my childhood, you know, that I had buried. So the postpartum break also gave an opening for these things that were buried but not gone to to come forward and say, help. first steps in moving towards getting the help you needed? Well, again, thank you, Portland, for being very progressive and embracing of alternative modalities of therapy. I remember first showing the the article to my husband, you know, like, what is he going to say? Of course, he was like, I think it's great. I'm so supportive of that. Let's do that right away. Okay, how do I find that? Why don't you reach out to this person? I bet they'd know. Oh, yeah, maybe she would know. First person I reached out to was like, yes, I know an amazing therapist. She's like very well-respected in the underground network in Portland. Reach out to her. So I did, and she was like, yeah, let's get started. Wow, first person. I mean, I it, it all just... It's kind of synchronicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first session, the first feeling that I had was 
<clears throat> you know when you go to the dentist and they give you x-rays and they put that heavy coat? That was the first feeling. It was like, oh, God, somebody just put a really heavy coat on my body and I cannot move. And at first that was alarming, but then it was really comforting. It was kind of like being swaddled, you know, like I couldn't move. And it just stayed like that. And it felt so good to just be so still and like just locked, locked in, but in a, in a safety kind of container. And the first thing that came was, was a memory. It wasn't even a memory I'd like forgotten. It was just a memory that was like over there, but I had no feeling around the memory. It was even like a memory that would pop into my thoughts a lot, but I'd be like, oh, there's that random memory that I have no feelings about. But the feelings came back. So the memory was being little and in church and sitting on my dad's lap and feeling... Mm. That's okay. Take your time. Mm. Okay, I can do it. (laughs) So, I remember sitting on his lap, and suddenly I felt very uncomfortable there. And I tried to move. But anyway, I moved, I felt like there was something underneath me that was hard. And I didn't want to be there, but he was holding me down so I couldn't get up. And I just felt so uncomfortable and so hot. And like there was this pressure. And I never had any of those feelings. I'd seen that memory so many times, but I had none of those feelings. And now they were all there. But I was still in that weighted blanket. And and then like the church thing ended and I just ran out, like running down the halls. My parents were like chasing me. So that was the first time. That was the first session. Hmm. So you'd had those memories, like the the images weren't different, but this I had no session, right? That the MDMA pulled you out of sort of the numbing and the and and took you right back into actually what what you felt, which had been so suppressed. Yeah, that's totally when the hand washing started. As a little girl. I remember it starting Mm. that day. I ran and washed my hands. Yeah, Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah, so that was incredible. You know, it was like terrible and a relief all at the same time. It just made so many things make so much sense. Mm. It's interesting because... Years before I got pregnant, 
I, I was still undecided. In fact, this dream is why I decided I really wanted to have kids. I dreamt of a little boy, and in the dream, the boy said, I'm going to be, I want you to be my mom. I've been sort of watching you, and I like you. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to help you finish what you started. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's such a powerful dream. Mm-hmm. Oh. And... It continues to prove to be true. He also told me, I want you to call me Ezra. I'm going to be your helper. So the next day, I'm like remembering this dream, recounting it to my husband, who's kind of like, oh, I thought you didn't want kids. I'm so scared about this. And Ezra means helper. Hmm. So interestingly enough, through that crazy wild ride he and I had in the hospital, I somehow knew he was going to be okay. I think I did. Because I just knew if he's my helper, he's got to be here. I don't think he's going to help me by dying. He's going to help me by living. When I started doing psychedelic work, it was really clear, oh, this is what I want to do. This is getting what getting to the root is all about. And it, was very, it wasn't like a conscious thought. It was like a, a feeling I had in, in a journey, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so, you know, overachiever me. <laughs> was like overachieving with my healing. And then I started healing that part and just started showing up to it. Then I did an apprenticeship with the woman who who was my guide. And somewhere in the middle of all that, we decided we were going to just go to Mexico. Because, well, unearthing sexual trauma in the midst of like, Kavanaugh trials was really rough. I just really felt like I can't raise my son here. Not now. Not now. My husband was really open to it. He wanted to as much as me because he loves to surf. And so, and the other part was like, maybe I just feel good if I am going to do this kind of work to do it in a place where I don't have to be underground. So those were the loose sort of ideas. And then we sold everything and we brought our then three and one-year-olds, we were crazy, to Mexico. And, you know, that was the beginning of the next chapter of deep healing. Like I continued to work with my, the woman who'd been my original guide and then mentor But I also started working with more indigenous healers there in Mexico. And then COVID happened. And then so many people started reaching out and asking for help. And they knew because the Portland Underground Network is pretty small. And so people were asking, can I come to Mexico and do this work with you? And I was 
very humble and intimidated and also excited. So that's kind of how my practice started to unfold. And, you know, as my boys have become less babies and more boys, I started really feeling this sense of like, hmm, they're very physical. And sometimes when they jump and they play and it's on my body, I'm triggered. And I can like love myself through that and have compassion for myself around it. But I also think I need to heal something more around the, the father, the masculine stuff. And so concurrently, at the same time, I had been, ever since moving to Mexico and seeing my mentor less frequently, in person at least, I had discovered your podcasts. And so that was like, you know, my, my, my other, like I treated it like school, you know, like new episode, got to take notes and study and write questions, you know, and yeah. And then I think there was one particular episode where I was really touched and moved and that made me decide to reach out to you. And that was like its own sort of vulnerable thing. But then you responded. And then I was like, oh, my God, what? He's like a human behind the show. Just all sorts of transference stuff going on that I was not even conscious of. I was having a conversation with my husband. And he was like, you know, maybe you should try to work with a male therapist. And I was like, no way. And... Then, like, maybe the same day or the next day, I was in the car listening to an episode, and, of course, in the synchronicities of it all, the episode, in that episode, you were referring to the the female patient, client, whatever verbiage you want to use, and, and thinking of how you had a real paternalistic sort of feeling of wanting to just support her. I had to pull my car over because I was just like, oh, the floodgates of tears open. Because I just think, you know, little girl me stopped having, quote unquote, stopped having needs for a dad. Because I just knew I didn't have one in my own. But I guess those feelings are still there. You know, so all these things are colliding together and I'm like, Maybe I'll just reach out to him and tell him, <laughs> which also felt very vulnerable. Like every, it's, it makes me feel silly. Like I, I think of myself as a good communicator. I don't overanalyze my communication. It's like something I'm usually confident about, but I'll analyze like for hours before I send you a message because I want it to be, it's like you're, I'm, you know, transferring dad stuff onto you. And I'm so scared of my dad that it's hard for, but this is the healing, right? It's like figuring out I don't have to be scared. Yeah. Um, and then you were like, yeah, that's, you were, your email was so nice and encouraging. And so, th- so my question was, can I come do some healing work with you? I didn't even, I mean, full transparency, I didn't even really know that much about ketamine, you know, but it was just, psychedelic work I believe in mind expanding I believe in and you know my like inner kid part designated you the the job 
decided you were safe, vetted you through all these episodes, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think through the experience of coming, what's different now than what's different before, like before I was embarrassed about that little girl doing those transference things to you. And now I feel proud of her, mm-hmm. which feels good, you know, because I think, good job. You had a really bad example, but you still managed to refine your picker. <laughs> you picked somebody who can play that role in a healthy, rehabilitative way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so ironic and just sweet that you found me, Micah, because uh, you know I'm very interested in transference and countertransference, as you know. And one of the most powerful transferences for me to work with is uh, kind of parental, mm. you know, parent-child. And... I have three daughters and I just have such love and sweetness and just just unconditional love for them. And so whenever I work with people that have struggled with a parent, but particularly a father, it's just like it feels, it just it triggers some really deep circuits in me. Like I, mm. I find like I, I pretty much only work with people who I connect with and, uh, and I, can find some part of them to really love and but yeah there is there is something about the the parent child sort of transference that is really powerful to work with which is ironic because you know in no way am i your parent like you're doing your own amazing stuff and you're a mom and you have a family and you're an adult and yet there's a thing that happens i think probably you're right happened in our emails and phone calls and then when you came to work with me for a while that uh we could just kind of knowingly walk into that transferential space and it's, it's really powerful. I believe the spirit wants to heal. My spirit wants to heal. And so it's like, it's been waiting for a dad its whole life. It doesn't matter if we're role playing a situation, if we can role play it and reconstruct the memory, then I can be more whole right now. That's wonderful. Mm. You know, it's great. Yay. (laughs) There's a little girl part that was just like dormant inside. And I can feel her like life force coming back. And, you know, I I can feel it, see it in how I'm able to more, more easily and organically play with my, my boys, you know, which is what I ultimately want. But as a kid, I didn't play. So, and I didn't feel safe around boys or men. So there's this whole new growth that's happening. So when I think about Micah, my life, that is really good because I want to be able to not just be, you know, like the translator of all their emotional complexities and analyzing them. I want to just be able to play with them and have fun with them. And I think the kid in me that was connected to my father wound was just stuck inside. And the transference, I think, really helped her to come back.
So I, I work now as a psychedelic guide with people and I just, I love, I love my work so much and I love being able to see people shed these terribly crushing pain stories and transmute them into something different. It's, it, it feels a little bit like magic. I mean, I know it's not because I see all the work that goes into it, but in that sort of psychedelic state where so much more elasticity is opened up, things can really change. And it's like you're watching that transformation happen right in front of you. A whole soul reconfiguring itself. It's just inspiring, you know? Um, and in my experience working with the tools, you know, pe- I feel like the medicine talks to different people in different ways. Specifically here, I'm talking about psilocybin, which is probably my favorite medicinal tool. One of the ways that the medicine talks to me is like little mantras that sometimes will be like a chant through the whole ceremony or sometimes multiple ceremonies, it will come to me. And one of the ones that often comes to me is trauma is the teacher, pain is the initiation. Now go, do your work. And I just think that's what she's, I think of her as a she, she's my like earth mother and she's just telling me that's, that's it. That's my life. I had this amazing traumatic teacher and I'm healing the pain. And now through that process of intimately understanding what that landscape is like to walk through, I can stand with others. I can hold this space for their maternal transference and I can help their little kids inside come back, you know, that's awesome. It's awesome. It's beautiful. I would like to end this with a note of gratitude. Gratitude for all of you listeners. I never imagined that I would meet and connect with so many listeners all over the world, including Micah. And this has been the most unexpected and wonderful gift of all. As always, you can reach me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. You can support Back from the Abyss by sharing this episode and our other favorite episodes with friends, family, and social media. And... It's always super appreciated when listeners write a review on their favorite podcast platform. And if you write a review, I'll screenshot it and I'll send it to Chris and then we'll both be happy campers. We'll be back in two weeks. 